Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Minkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. If you hear whining in the background, that is my lab beagle mix, Rio, who's so nervous because we have contractors at the house today. So I do apologize, but happy February to you all. I hope you all had a chance to check out our most recent essay, When a Home is Not a Sanctuary But a Sickening Expensive Trap, by fellow Gabriel Gadsden. You may remember Gabriel from this podcast. Gabriel's research sits at the intersection of wildlife and energy justice, and his essay is a fascinating read about how we're largely failing to see this connection. You can find that essay at ehn.org. All right, today I am talking to fellow Joe LaFrance, a doctoral student in the Department of Environmental Science at the University of Arizona. We talk about her being raised on the Crow Reservation in Montana and her family's deep roots there, her work on water quality on the Little Bighorn River, the river from her homeland, and her work in outreach with young indigenous women and girls. Enjoy. All right, I am now joined by Jory LaFrance. Jory, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. And I usually do this before we get going, but I pronounced your name right, correct? Yes, you did. <laughs> All right, good. Yours is not difficult, but I always like I always like to check. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And where are you joining us from? I am joining from Tucson, Arizona. So I have the sun out today. Although it's been cold, we have some snow in our mountains, but nothing compared to the snow back in Montana. <laughs> So, Joe Reed, you are from the Crow Tribe in Montana, a place I've had the good fortune to visit. Why don't you tell me a little bit about where you're from and how it shaped you? Yeah, for sure. Well, I just wanted to do a small introduction. So my name is Eugene Machlish, which means fortunate with horses. And my name was given to me by Sue Takes Horse. I come from the Greasy Mouth clan, and I'm a child of the Ties in the Bundle clan. And I'm 27 years old and come from the Upsalagan Nation in southeastern Montana. I was born and raised on the reservation there. And I'm very, very fortunate to come from the Bighorn Mountains. The Bighorn Mountains, I like to call my outside heart, the center of my universe. I've been all over the world, and my heart always longs for home. And I, I just love the landscape that we come from and you know how deeply rooted uh, it is to my people the reason why we are in the Bighorn Mountains is because of of the tobacco seed the tobacco seed is what brought us to the Bighorns and it grew there my people we traveled all over and we were on a mission on a quest to fulfill a vision by one of our warriors and Finally, that tobacco seed, it grew in the Bighorn Mountains, and that's where my people uh, were told they were going to thrive, and that was their their holy place. 
And I can say, having been out there, it is just a it is a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, I wrote about Chief Plenty Coup Spring when I was out there, and I think we we discussed this. I got to visit many of the places you spoke about, and I wonder if you could talk about. So you you gave us a really nice uh, backdrop there. How was this history and lineage taught to you growing up? How was this kind of embedded in your childhood? And when you were younger, did you have an appreciation for it like you do now? Growing up. It was just an inherent thing. My mother did a very good job of letting me know who my relatives are, letting letting me know about my family tree, who I'm a descendant of. I I come from really good families, and I don't just say that just you know because they're my family. Like I seriously do come from good families. I've I've been told many times, you know, even the last trip I had home, they talked about my family and how I come from a good family. I. No, I'm a white clay, I'm a tobacco, I'm a horn, a bear claw, a nose is gun, a Harrison of France. And, you know, <clears throat> I'm primar- primarily, I was raised of Saluga. And my mom, she's a fluent speaker. And I grew up, you know, around all of my family on the reservation. We're so tight knit and everyone lives there. So I just grew up with, you know, my whole family, my whole extended family around me. And, I I come from educators, I come from leaders, role players, you know, people who are out there making a change, you know, lawyers. I come from, you know, one of my family members is a medical doctor. She's the first Upsalaga women medical doctor. She speaks fluent Crow. She's a pediatrician. So, you know, I just come from good people and I take pride in that and to to know that I come from that lineage, you know, it's just it's they're big shoes to fill, <laughs> but I, I'm appreciative of that. And I, I'm a descendant of Chief Pretty Eagle. He was the last principal chief. So he, along with Chief Plenty Coup, who you mentioned before, um, Chief Plenty Coup is definitely younger than Chief Pretty Eagle, but they were pivotal leaders during that time, during the transition into the reservation era or when we were forced on reservations and we couldn't leave. We had restrictions. Our land was taken away from us. It was just a huge transition for us and pretty Eagle and plenty coup along with a few other uh, chiefs who obtained chieftainship through, you know, our, our traditional way of receiving that we have four deeds that they have to do. And, and chief pretty Eagle, he was the last principal chief and he actually was so to be a principal chief means that every band in our tribe you know basically wanted him to be the leader so we had different bands and we you know separate <clears throat> function in our own little societies but we'd all come together to celebrate to eat to dance to pray to do to just be with each other and uh, pretty eagle was chosen as that principal chief and he was the last one before we were put onto reservations and i just you know, to come from that legacy as well, I can name right now my lineage all the way back to him. Um, and so it's just, you know, like I said, I, I come from leaders and people that have a, a, a Salagam mindset and we give back and it's just something that it's inherent in me and I just, I have to do it and I love doing it. And that's the other thing is I love being a part of, you know, my people, I love being a part of my families and I love being able to give back in ways <clears throat> that I never thought I would have had the opportunity to. And you are giving back both 
professionally and personally, and I want to get into that. But before we do, I want to ask you the big unwieldy question I ask everybody, and that's what's a defining moment that shaped your identity up to this point? I I was raised around horses. You know, my Uppsala name is Fortunate with Horses, E.G. Machlish. And so I grew up with horses my entire life. And I guess the moment for me was when I actually realized the magnitude and significance of the Crow Fair Parade. So annually, every third weekend in August, my people, we come together to celebrate. We have a powwow, rodeo parade every morning. And this parade is nothing like you've ever seen before. We have no, our horses, <clears throat> excuse me, our horses have beadwork all over them. We have our elk tooth dresses. We have, you know, cars decorated with dresses. And you, it's just something like you've never seen before. And for me, I've always done that. Even when I was a little girl before I could even walk, I was already on a horse riding. And as I got older and I did that every year, it it just made me so appreciative to to come from that there's nothing like that in the world and that's who we are as Ipsalagat people and our beadwork is so distinct and unique you can tell crow beadwork from you know any other beadwork and for me especially my family we have two parade sets so when I say parade sets it's you know an old-time saddle a martingale that goes in front of the horse the head stall we have a keyhole that goes in front cruppers um let's see lance case wedding blankets like there's so many pieces to it cradle boards and for us for my family we have two sets that were made in the 1800s and i'm the sixth generation to use them and we're one of the only well actually yeah we're one of the only few where almost the whole parade set is old but you have families that have just pieces that are old and then people that have these older dresses. And my family, we have almost everything. And that's significant because museums and collectors, they took our things. They, you know, I look at old photos and you just see all of these women and girls, even men dressed up in their horses have everything they, you know, traveled with so many elk tooth dresses and now I'm it just breaks my heart like I'm one of the few families that actually still has one of these old dresses but you've also been able to kind of merge this passion of course with your professional work which I think is so cool um and you're researching water and soil science with a focus on the little bighorn river which you mentioned so can you tell me about the river its importance and what kinds of contamination patterns it has because I know that's kind of what you're looking into you know, I don't have a first memory of the Little Bighorn River just because it's all I've ever known. <laughs> you know, it's always been a part <laughs> of my life. I was raised, you know, I can go outside and if you just close your eyes and imagine all of the sounds around you, you can hear the river. That's how close I live to the river. And, you know, like I mentioned before, my people have been around this area on this land for many generations and the Little Bighorn River for for me, it's, I feel like it's our full responsibility to, to take care of this river. It begins in the Bighorn Mountains, flows about 11 miles north, hits the border, the Montana-Wyoming border, and immediately, as soon as it crosses the border, it's on our reservation. Then it only flows north 
on our reservation and hits the Bighorn River just at the northern northern end of our reservation. And, you know, at that point, the river is completely in our jurisdiction. It's fully in our responsibility. And so that, to me, is just like I, I had to study this river. And I worked with the Crow Environmental Health Steering Committee, who you've also worked with, and that's who you came to visit uh, and talk about water quality issues. So they've been so instrumental in my PhD journey, for sure, and my research journey. And their work is focused on environmental health and uh, community risk, specifically in private wells, so groundwater. We do sample uh, surface waters like the Bighorn River, um, Aludaja, Arrow Creek, or Prior Creek, and then the springs, so like Plenty Coup Springs. But not a lot of work was being done on the Little Bighorn River itself extensively. And, you know, we had different conversations about our water settlement and using the Little Bighorn River more. And so I, I really wanted to focus on surface water quality. And I just love watershed science in general. <laughs> I just love the, the, the might of rivers. I'm just a river girl. <laughs> um, and so for, for me, when I returned home after I graduated from Dartmouth College, I took a year off and worked with the steering committee on water quality issues, sampling. We did a, a climate change, um, in it, a climate change study working with elders. And I was applying to grad school and University of Arizona has always been on my mind in terms of water resources. And, you know, it's crazy where in the desert, there's not that much water, but it's a, you know, a top program for water resources. And so I was really drawn to that. And, you know, I, everything, the stars aligned. I'm here now at the University of Arizona in the Department of Environmental Science. My specific research is trying to understand the concentration discharge relationship of the Little Bighorn River. Essentially, I want to know how pollutants are behaving as a function of seasonal river flows. So throughout the year, we know that a river will change its discharge or its flow across its specific area. And we know that it changes throughout the seasons. For example, in December, we're at base flow. It's at its lowest, at its calmest. And then we start to get snow melt and rain showers causing the rivers to fill up more and more. And by June, we have high peak and our high peak discharge where the river is at its highest, at its strongest, and it's just roaring. And I want to know how these pollutants are functioning um, throughout these changes. And I do this by bringing together high frequency water sampling and placing multi-parameter sensors, XO2 SON sensors in the Little Bighorn River. So I have one sensor towards the beginning of the river at the Montana-Wyoming state line trying to gain a better understanding of what's happening more in the mountainous area and the Bighorn Mountains before it hits our reservation. And then the second location is in a place we call Ashibita, which is Black Lodge, and that's towards the end of the river, towards the confluence 
where the Little Bighorn River meets the Bighorn River. And this sensor is really trying to collect information of what's happening throughout the entire watershed. We do have agricultural development. We have towns that are along this river. Just a lot of anthropogenic influences. And I wanted to gain a better understanding of what that looks like for us. And the samples are collected weekly, either by myself when I am home. And then I have field help. This whole PhD has been such a family affair. I'm very grateful for my family who, you know, sample for me, sample for me when I need it and check on my sensors. And I also have field help, two Uppsala gas students who have had such an integral role in my sampling. My field help actually went out earlier today, so we were trying to make sure everything was all good to go for him to go out. So super grateful for all of the help and the support that I have. I would not be where I am without all of that help. So the pollutants that I'm looking for are mainly related to what is happening at home. So I'm looking at toxic metals, pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers. We are also looking at wastewater treatment byproducts and then PFAS. PFAS is per and polyfluoral alkyl substances and those are man-made compounds. And they can be really, really complex. My lab, the Arizona Laboratory for Emerging Contaminants, really is at the forefront of developing methods to PFAS, which is, you know, incredible work that they're doing. And I'm very, very fortunate to be a part of the lab group that I am a part of. So many role players in the work that I do, and it's just been a roller coaster so far, but very grateful for this PhD journey and cannot wait to be done and cannot wait to move home to continue the hard work. Yeah, I like the idea of calling family like, hey, get down to the river. I need my samples. That's easier than dealing with like an intern or, or something like that. So when you have when you, when you, it sounds like you're trying to it, through your research, kind of paint a picture of of the cycle, the life cycle of the river throughout the year and, and different contamination loads. Um, what do you what do you hope that knowledge does? You know, if you if you were able to say paint that picture, what would be the next step um, in what you would want that knowledge used for? Yeah, for sure. So ultimately, my goal is to, you know, create a foundation of data and understanding of the Little Bighorn River. The Bighorn River is a world-class fishing river. It's a world-renowned river. Many people study that river. It's located on my reservation. We have Yellowtail Dam with the reservoir there. So that river is very well studied. And for the Little Bighorn River, I just wanted to, you know, provide a, a foundation. And I really, in the end, hoping that, you know, bringing all of this data, all of this information together about our resources, even our groundwater resources, is to obtain treatment as state. And what essentially that means that under the Clean Water Act, a tribe can set their own water quality standards that are more stringent than state and federal EPA standards. So a tribe can, you know, for example, let's say arsenic is 10 micrograms per liter. You know, that's the, the maximum contaminant level. And a tribe, for example, wants their level to be seven micrograms per liter or so they would you know have to it's a it's a much deeper process than what I'm mentioning now but I'm just giving a general idea of what 
uh, you know, treatment as state status means. And, you know, a tribe can do that. And every stakeholder, every person, whether you're non-native or native living on along this river, as long as you are upstream of that tribe, you have to abide by those standards. So you can be off the reservation and you still have to abide by those standards. So it's a long process, but definitely something in the end that I would like for my tribe. That way we can monitor our waters, um, you know, restore the health of those, those water systems that might be impaired or address the issues that our rural community members face as far as their private wells. Like we can monitor these things and actually take a hold on, on, you know, addressing these water contamination issues at a, at a policy, at a tribal sovereignty level. And that's, that's my hope. That's my ultimate goal. (laughs) Hopefully I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's a lot of work, (laughs) but I know that it's going to take a team and I have a good team at home and I'm very excited to, to return home and to get to work. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I I remember being there and you mentioned a world-class fishery for, first of all, it was a little jarring to see some of the high-end fishing guides. I just thought it, it's, it, it felt out of place (laughs) for some reason, but I did find myself standing on the shores, the the banks of the bighorn and thinking, Mm -hmm. I wish I had my fly rod with me um, (laughs) more than once. But unfortunately when you're working, you can't do those kind of things. So I, (laughs) I don't know, Jory, if traditional ecological knowledge is still the preferred term. I know at one point that was kind of tech. That's what everybody said when they would refer to this. I don't know if that's a term, but basically, how are you incorporating the tribe in your research when it comes to kind of the deep historical knowledge of the river and the broader landscape? Everything is inherent. I think, you know, you can hear how much this river means to me and my people. And so... For us, we, so we have a story that I feel like really kind of centered all of the work that I do. And it's about Chilapsapo, the seven sacred rams. They're the keepers of the Bighorn Mountains. And we have the Bighorn River, the Little Bighorn River. These, these rivers and our mountains, they're named after them. They're the keepers of them. We have a story of the seven sacred rams saving a young boy who turned into an incredible warrior and brought teachings back to our people. And one of them, one of those teachings was to always keep the mountains and the rivers the same name. And as long as they remain named after the seven sacred rams, that we will remain as Absaluga people. And that story is just, it just, it makes me you take that responsibility of not just keeping the names, of course, but, you know, that responsibility to these, to the river, to the land, to the mountains. And, you know, I know I have a responsibility as an absolute yeah, women to care for our lands. You know, it's just, it's just a, a natural thing that we do. And I, I, I wanted to, to bring that stewardship, that responsibility into my research. I probably would have not done a PhD if I wasn't able to center it at home or use the knowledge or the, um, you know, the community-based aspect of the work that I do. I am very hard-pressed on that. And so for, for this story to you know, bring me to where I am. I just like, it just, 
it just like warms my heart or it, like, I don't know. I just feel so lucky to be able to do, to do this work uh, the way that I do. And, you know, we have teachings, um, for the river. So like I said, like we're sampling all year round. We have when in the spring, when the cotton first falls, that's when we feed the river and we can finally swim in the river. And, um, so technically we're not supposed to be in the river and I'm sampling in the river. So I'm in the river all year round and I do clan feeds. I feed my clan mother. We have a clan system that we heavily rely on. And I do these things, um, you know, as I do my research, I feed the river every time I go into the water or, you know, download data from my sensors. <laughs> I'm doing these things and feeding the river means you know, praying and showing respect for said the water creatures, those beings that are in the water and just asking for protection, showing our respect, letting them know we're not there to disrespect or to, you know, destruct or whatever. It's just, you know, it's that mutual respect. And a lot of times I'm in remote areas. And so I don't like to go alone. I'll usually take, you know, my sister with me or you know, one of my friends or my dad, but there's been a moment where I did have to go alone and it's remote and we have mountain lions, we have bears, <laughs> we have everything <laughs> out there. And, you know, I always just have to like, like let everyone know that I'm there and that I'm here to do, I mean, well, I'm just trying to collect some water samples. <laughs> and so it's just these small things that I feel like we're inherently a part of everything that I'm doing. And I try to make sure that I show full respect because I do mean, well, I'm just trying to fulfill my responsibility and do, do good and to restore, restore the health of our waters. And for not only um, our, the water beings, but for our people as well. And I think that's, that's why, or that's where my my entire motivation comes from, and it it's, it is rooted in in those stories, in that responsibility. And having been there, there are some remote places out there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that is a massive reservation. <laughs> yeah, we actually we have the largest reservation in Montana, and the fifth largest in the U.S. So it's a lot of ground, and. Some areas don't have cell service, like my lo- first location near the border. There's no service, so <laughs> it's pretty remote. But you know, I just always check in with people. I'll be back in an hour if I don't message in an hour. <laughs> something's wrong. <laughs> so just you know, mutual re- respect, everything all the way around. <laughs> Is it two million acres? Do I remember that right? Is okay. About I thought so. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Yes, two point two million acres. That is that's a massive part of it. I mean, not yeah, as it's massive than Rhode as Island, sh- right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I mean, not not what it should be, obviously, but um, it is. It oh is yeah, a big piece of land, right? Yeah, our reservation used to extend all the way down to the Wind River Mountains, as far east towards the Black Hills, as far west past you know Livingston towards the Bozeman area, far north as the Milk River, like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and over time, it just shrunk and shrunk. And I have a map of our original boundaries and, you know, our territories as the four reservations, what we, how we explain those boundaries. We have a warrior. He 
talks about the four base poles to explain, you know, where where we lived. And then, of course, when the federal government over treaties were signed, land was forcibly taken. And so it, that map is just over time, small, mm-hmm. smaller, smaller, smaller. And it's crazy to, you know, I when I was home two weekends ago, I went to Gardner, Montana to you know, go soak in the hot springs and take a day for myself. <laughs> and it's about a three hour drive from our reservation. And that was, that's all crow country. And that's at mm-hmm. the, the gateway to Yellowstone. And mm-hmm. it's just, I get a little upset every time <laughs> I go, but you know, I, we're, we're very fortunate to still, to have our reservation be on our traditional homelands because not a lot of communities, not a lot of, uh, tribes are fortunate to be on their original homelands. They were placed on a reservation completely far from where, you know, they were, where their heart is. And that's, that's another thing why I'm so grateful to come from where I come from. And so that's just a, another aspect to why I appreciate being of Sal yeah. <laughs> so you've also gotten a chance to work in the community not dealing directly with your PhD. I know you work whenever possible with young women and girls from the Crow. So why is this so important to you? And what are some of the community projects you've worked on in this space? As a Psalogat people, we come from a matrilineal society. Everything comes from our mother, our clans. I mentioned before that I'm greasy mouth. So my mother's greasy mouth, her mother's greasy mouth, so on and so forth. And... um. You know, that being a matrilineal matrilineal society is just everything is about the mother. Everything is about, you know, coming from um, the women in our family. And I come from strong, amazing women. And I know that there are many strong women in my community. And I just I, I love being around them, being surrounded, being empowered by them. And I just been so fortunate to be involved in community engaged projects, civic engagement projects. I've done a sewing, a creative circle workshop where I brought in Bethany Yellowtail, who's a Northern Cheyenne fashion designer. She taught about 40 women how to sew and they each left with their own skirt and other project I did was a healing workshop. And that workshop actually was in response to a case that occurred on our reservation back in January 2020. So the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls epidemic is rampant across Indian country, specifically in Bighorn County in has been kind of the hotspot for MMIW and Bighorn County is where the Crow Reservation is located. So Selena, not afraid, she was, she was murdered and still to this day, what, three years later, no justice has been served. And in response to that, that when that happened to Selena, it just, it hit our community so hard and that was selena was the second within six months of another girl was murdered in august case sarah pretty on stops pretty places and 
Gee. So we were just so heartbroken. Like our whole community, we were all heartbroken over it. And so the thing for me is, okay, there's so much rage, so much hurt. How can I turn this into something positive? How can we do something to at least have a little bit of remediation or just a little bit of healing that broken heart? So the first thing I I did was turn that that hurt and that rage into something positive. And we wanted to at least do something to bring a little bit of healing or spark that healing. And I partnered with the Native Wellness Institute out of Washington, and they're incredible. They do incredible healing work, indigenous-based healing work. And I brought them to our community, and we did two days of workshopping, and it we had Selena's grandmother come and that just meant the world to me. And it just, it just made that whole thing worth it when I saw her there and she thanked us and she, we cried with her and we, and it just, it just made me feel so good to, to see that she was there with us and that she wanted to, to heal and she wanted to, to do everything she could to, to get through this because it hit all of us. And I can't imagine how hard it hit their family. It just motivated me to continue to do more work. And not only have I done that, I've, you know, worked with youth. Uh, We did a mural project. So there's a mural and Crow agency that we worked on. And I've also worked with Crow agency, public school students. We published a children's book based on their names, their Obsoligan names if they didn't have a name, which happens, I asked them to to write about what it means to be Absaliga or what they like about being Absaliga. So all of them had awesome stories, awesome illustrations. So we published a book. It's not for sale. I, I published it. I just basically bought, you know, a mass production of them, gave it to them, to their families, and then provided it to our schools and I didn't want to get into the whole selling of things. I just wanted to have something for our students to say they actually published a book and to to read this book with their families. So that was another project that I did. And most recently, which it's actually coming up on February 19th, I will be hosting a self-defense workshop with Alima Lee McFarlane. She's a native Hawaiian Bellator MMA fighter. And she does a lot of work across Indian country doing self-defense, um, self-empowerment, uh, and especially with women in our communities. So I'm bringing her up to Crow Country and we're going to have a workshop and, you know, do self-defense, self-empowerment work with her. So I'm really excited about that. And yeah, I have, you know, many other ideas and projects in mind. I applied to two other grants to hopefully get those projects funded. Not only that, I also started my own program called Alia Chick Indigenous Correspondence Program, which is a partnership between Planet Forward, which is out of George Washington University's School of Media, and the University of Arizona's Indigenous Resilience Center. And it's a storytelling group where we come together and we're learning from indigenous experts. We have workshops that are 
all led by Indigenous experts. Actually, later today, we are hosting Dr. Robin Kimmerer, and we have a cohort of 10 Indigenous students all across Indian country, you know, even a Dartmouth College student, uh, a student from University of Alaska, Fairbanks. So we're expanding coast to coast. And we, you know, we meet in these workshops learning, um, you know, the, the art of journalism, but more of storytelling and communication. We are not journalists by, you know, by trade. We, none of our majors are journalism, but we are all interested in environmental storytelling. Well, I want to ask you, you seem to me like an optimistic person. Sometimes I shouldn't assume things about people, but uh, I sense a lot of positivity from you. Um, But I know sometimes this work can be uh, environmental work, and especially when it comes to the treatment of indigenous people, this work can be heavy. Um, So what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about the idea of being a role player. I think for me, I have this mentality of I, so, you know, we, I tend to, you know, kind of idolize our ancestors. For example, Chief Pretty Eagle, I, you know, I idolize him. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is an incredible warrior, you know, gave back to his people, cared for his people, did everything he could let us through these transitions and we're still here today thriving. And I, I idolize that. But then I'm like, a hundred years ago is not that long ago. My mom, she was she was raised by his daughter. So it's just it's not that long ago where I'm not that far removed from it. And I play the same role as they do. And so having this mentality of I play the same roles that my ancestors did just in a different time. And so I, that just like, that's what keeps me going. And I know that I, they did everything they could for these generations that they never even met. And I have to have that same mentality. And for me doing everything I can to ensure that our, we're strong in our sovereignty. We, we're strong as a nation. We're strong as a community. We're healing. We're moving forward in a good way, in a way where we can be unapologetically absolute. Yeah, we can, you know, love everything about <laughs> what's going on. And, it, you know, we're still in that healing process. We're still healing from these traumas. And I'd love to get to that point where our children don't have to heal from those traumas anymore. We're healed. We're good. Now we can thrive. And that's just what gets me so excited and wanting to do the work. And I just, I just know that I have a role in everything. I'm only one person, so I dream big. (laughs) I have a lot of support at home. I have a lot of support, um, you know, from my networks, of course, those who believe in me and, um, want me to to continue to do the work that I do if I didn't have support honestly things would not be the way they are so that's what I think I'm most optimistic about is just being being that person uh to or being a role player in this grand scheme of things and to know that I I do have an important role we all have an important role and to be able to to contribute that to a broader goal is just 
something I love to be a part of. I like the idea of a podcaster a hundred years from now talking to somebody and they're talking about you, like you're <laughs> talking about some of your ancestors. And I don't think that's a funny thought. I think uh, if podcasting is still a thing, who knows? It's probably some kind of weird uh, uh, artificial intelligence thing. But oh um, I don't think that's it. Given, given everything you have going on, um, it seems like you have gone above and beyond in your leadership in the community and it's 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 admirable. So Jory, I have just some fun questions to end things here and this has been so fun for me to learn about you and your work. So these are just three rapid fire questions. You can just answer with one, one word or a phrase. First one is the best gift I ever received is being absolute. <laughs> My favorite family recipe is my great grandmother's fry red recipe on my white clay side. Oh, I still use it today. <laughs> <laughs> if I could have dinner with anyone, it would be it would be my grandmother. So my mom lost her mother when she was nine years old. And I just always wondered what it would be like to know her and to things. I just know things would be so much different if she was here. So that's the one person I would love to meet. And this one, you don't have to confine yourself to one word or phrase, but I'd like to know what is the last book that you read for fun? Yeah, well, as a PhD student... It's a little tough to read for fun, <laughs> um, but the last book for me, that the first one that comes into my mind is the Absalogab Women and Warriors. I actually have it right here. Absalogab Women and Warriors exhibit the catalog. So I was also a part of a museum exhibit, a part of a collective of Absalogab people who worked with the Field Museum, the University of Chicago Neubauer Collegium, and... We created an exhibit, a book, and that was the last one that I actually read page to page. <laughs> There's many different stories. I have two essays in there. Um, we have fo- I did a photo project for that exhibit as well. That's in the book. And yeah, it's just an incredible book. So many stories, so much knowledge in, in that book. So check it out. <laughs> Excellent. And is that available to the public? Yeah, it is. Absaluga Women and Warriors. You can find it, uh, let's see, at the University of Chicago Press, I believe. Perfect. So. That is excellent. Well, Joe Ree, this has been such a fun time for me. I really enjoy hearing about you and your work. I don't know how you do it all. It seems like you're doing too much. <laughs> but uh, again, it's very admirable. And thank you so much for taking time this afternoon. Yes, thank you so much. Incredibly grateful for the opportunity. And thank you for listening. I hope you learned something good today. <laughs> That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joe Ree. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangeinej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. You listen to this and all past episodes. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Onelis Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. You can email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join us next time when our founder, director, and leader, Dr. Amizota, speaks with Tamara Tolls O'Laughlin 
an internationally recognized environmental advocate and climate strategist who has worked across the government and nonprofit sectors and currently is president and CEO of the Environmental Grantmakers Association. Have a great week, folks.